All righty. Well, hello, everybody. Sorry about my voice. Um, have just lost it uh, in the setting of a bunch of uh, the viral illnesses going around. But um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about a, a paper that was done by Aspina Tuscone et al. Um, it's a paper that was done in 2020 in the Annals of Intensive Care. And it looks at the diastolic shock index and clinical outcomes in patients with septic shock. So kind of an interesting interesting study that I thought would be a, a fun one to talk about. So as far as the background goes for this particular paper, really the purpose of this paper was to discuss the relationship between the diastolic shock index, which authors defined as being the diastolic blood pressure divided by the heart rate, and a variety of different clinical outcomes. They also wanted to compare the correlation of the diastolic shock index, I'll refer to that as the DSI, with outcomes of those like heart rate, systolic shock index, and MAP alone as they pertain to uh, various you know, clinical outcomes related to septic shock. The ultimate hypothesis that they had was that diastolic blood pressure is thought to be a better representation of vascular tone, and as a result, the diastolic shock index might actually provide a more accurate representation of the patient's status during septic shock uh, in comparison with things like um, the systolic shock index, for example, which is what we typically look at when we're thinking about shock in these patients. So <clears throat> as far as the methods go, this was a relatively complicated study in a lot of ways, and we'll kind of get into that a little bit. But um, as far as the methods go, the study design was a retrospective cohort study. So really this was utilizing previously obtained data to evaluate the relationship between a given variable, so in this, in this case, our given variable is the diastolic shock index and characteristics or a certain outcome. Um, the study population, <clears throat> so they actually pooled data from a variety of different studies, specifically two different ones, one of which you might be familiar which, which with, which was the Andromeda shock trial, um, which was published just prior to this, and that was a randomized controlled trial uh, with 424 patients that was looking at early vasopressors in the setting of shock. They also looked at um, uh, patients from a preliminary cohort. And this was a cohort of 337 patients. Um, that, was, that was just something that they collected at their various hospitals. As far as exclusion criteria, there were a variety of them, and we won't necessarily go into all of them, but a couple of them that I think are uh, relatively important to consider are um, patients with liver failure or advanced liver cirrhosis and those with chronic or acute atrial fibrillation uh, or any evidence of a ventricular arrhythmia. And we can kind of discuss a little bit why I think those are important uh, things to exclude in, this, in the case of uh, um, this study in patients with septic shock. They controlled for a variety of different confounding variables. So specifically, they looked at a couple of different outcomes and a couple of different measures. Uh, specifically, they looked at the volume of fluid resuscitation at zero, two, four, and eight hours, in addition to the net fluid balance of a patient uh, at hours eight and hours 24 after the start of vasopressors. They also adjusted for things like the actual systolic shock index as well as the SOFA criteria, 
which is something that we can use, or the QSOFA criteria, which is something that we can use as a kind of a predictor of morbidity and mortality in patients with septic shock. Um, those who required replacement, renal replacement therapy, and then just a variety of different general patient characteristics. Given that this was a retrospective cohort study, they were actually able to calculate the relative risk um, in this particular study. So they were able to look at the relative risk of the study population or those exposed compared to the average population. So specifically in this case, look at uh, the relationship between DSI and a variety of different patient outcomes and calculate that risk as it compares to uh, kind of a control group. So as far as the statistical analysis goes, something that was a little bit interesting, and we won't dig completely into um, all of the statistics because it's relatively complicated, but one thing that I think is important to understand about this particular study is they broke up the DSI into five different quintiles. Um, and that's a little bit interesting. And somebody mentioned during our journal club that if you're breaking your your um, your variables up into specifically continuous variables up into a variety of different quintiles, that suggests that you probably didn't have the statistical power to find um, a statistically significant result uh, without breaking them up into those chunks. So that does uh, provide a little bit of a weakness to this particular study and is definitely something to consider when we think about whether or not this is clinically relevant at this point. So um, kind of digging a little bit more into the statistical analysis. So they calculated a mean risk and 95% quant uh, confidence interval for each of these different quantiles. And then they adjusted these relative risks for a variety of different confounding variables, including the SOFA day one, the Apache 2 um, score, initial arterial lactate, the volume of resuscitation, and then volume of fluids received after vasopressor initiation in addition to age. They conducted a variety of different statistical analyses as well. Um, specifically, they did uh, some receiver operating characteristic curves, which really just plots the sensitivity on the y-axis and then the false positive rate on the x-axis which allows us to really kind of test for a, a values or a particular characteristics performance. And so specifically, they were doing that with things like MAP, systolic shock index and diastolic shock index, and trying to compare um, whether or not uh, diastolic shock index would be a more sensitive or specific predictor of mortality or a particular outcome. They also did a logistic regression model, which is typically what we do in uh, in the cases of these particular retrospective cohort studies where we have multiple covariates that we're controlling for. Um, and so without getting into the logistics of that, that's just a relatively common um, statistical analysis technique. So as far as the results go, what they found was that diastolic shock index was related with a gradual increase in the relative risk of death at 90 days in both of the different uh, patient populations that we discussed previously, so from both of the different cohorts. They also found that there was an association of decreased relative risk as long as the heart rate decreased and the diastolic uh, pressure remained either increased or remained the same. So essentially, this is saying that as DSI values decreased, there was an associated decrease in relative risk with relation to specific adverse outcomes. They also found that DSI performed relatively similarly in predicting mortality at 28 and 90 days 
when comparing with SOFA as well as initial lactate levels. This is somewhat interesting, um, at least I find this somewhat interesting from a clinical perspective because this is something that you can calculate at the bedside, right? So if you have a patient who comes in and they're currently in shock, you suspect septic shock, you're able to calculate a diastolic shock index within about 30 seconds of kind of looking at the patient monitors, whereas both the SOFA score as well as lactate requires you to have a variety of different laboratory values that aren't necessarily readily available immediately on patient presentation. So this can kind of just cue you into um, how sick a patient truly is, which I think is one of the interesting things that we can take away from this study and, and potentially um, you know utilize in the future as uh, as a useful clinical tool. Um, aside from that, um, they found that the isolated diastolic blood pressure, systolic shock index, and MAP, all three of these different variables alone were poor uh, predictors of mortality in this particular study. So kind of digging into um, digging into the discussion a little bit. So Takeaways from this particular study, I think we already mentioned it a little bit here, but higher DSI values were associated with gradual increases in the risk of adverse outcomes, specifically mortality. That being said, we have to remember that these were broken up into quintiles, and so that does concern us a little bit as far as um, the relative statistical power this study has for really showing a or proving a statistically significant and clinically beneficial outcome. So I think that's something that we need to consider with regards to interpretation of this particular studies. Um, in addition to that, as we kind of previously talked about, isolated low diastolic blood pressure or high heart rate did not necessarily correlate as well as mortality with mortality risk. It was the combination of both that, um, that predicted mortality a little bit more seriously. They also found that non-survivors were more likely to have persistently elevated diastolic shock indexes relative to their counterparts who did uh, end up having um, more clinically uh, beneficial outcomes. So as far as limitations, there's definitely a lack of external validity as far as this particular study goes. This study was conducted in South America, primarily at a variety of hospitals in Colombia. And so um, they definitely had a limited population base that they were pulling from. And so it would definitely be interesting to reapply some of these um, study characteristics to a, a broader population worldwide to see if we can kind of expand that external validity. Um, another thing that was mentioned is that blood pressures were obtained using non-invasive methods. So specifically, um, they were using blood pressure cuffs rather than arterial lines, which may not have been quite as accurate uh, with regards to the true, you know, the true blood pressures and true um, characteristics that we were trying to follow in these particular patients. Um, in addition, this is a retrospective study, so it does open, uh, open the potential for a variety of different confounding variables and potential biases. I think that uh, they did a relatively decent job at controlling for some of those including things like SOFA, initial lactate. However, I think that, you know, doing something like a randomized control trial or even a prospective cohort study could be more beneficial in these, uh, in these particular cases. Last, I think one of the more um, <clears throat> significant um, barriers here as far as, um, as far as how we can really extrapolate this data are some of their 
their exclusion criteria. So specifically, they left out folks that had pre-existing atrial fibrillation or acute onset atrial fibrillation. And um, I know that as you go along in training, I'm sure you've probably noticed that oftentimes folks present with new onset atrial fibrillation with RVR when they're very, very, very sick. Um, and so I think that this really limited some of their um, their study population and is something that I think I think would have been beneficial to include. And the same goes with uh, those with ventricular failure. In addition to that, I think it's important to include patients like cirrhotics. Um, these are oftentimes some of our sickest patients. Uh, and I think that excluding them might have been a mistake in this particular study. Kind of all in all, do we think that this is a practice-changing study? I think that at this point, the answer to that question is no. Um, I think that this provides a really nice jumping-off study. I think it's an interesting topic to consider the diastolic shock index and how it relates to clinical outcomes. Again, it's a very accessible measurement that we can, we can calculate on our patients pretty much immediately on presentation. And so it would be very, very nice if we could have additional studies that, su that suggest, maybe with a little bit higher statistical power, that suggest that there is a, a true relationship between um, the diastolic shock index and various clinical outcomes uh, at 28 and 90 days. Um, but I think, again, this is not something that we can necessarily apply at the bedside right now.